So if this is your first time with us, uh, today we're looking at uh, Genesis uh, 17 verses 15 uh, into Genesis 18 verse uh, 15. But what we're doing this summer is uh, we're looking at uh, various encounters that God has with his people. And we're calling this sermon series a visitation, encounters with a God. And uh, we are starting off the series by really diving into the life of Abraham and Sarah. And so we dove in and looked at Genesis 15, then Genesis 16, now 17 and 18. And then in uh, two weeks, we'll continue things by looking at the life of uh, Jacob. And so we're doing this really because these encounters show us what it means for us to meet God. And so let's uh, look at Genesis 17, verses 15, and getting into uh, Genesis 18. You can follow along in, on the, the wall behind me or in your worship guide. And so let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of the foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Merer, as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? He said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. 
Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a popular proverb that that says that laughter is the best medicine. It's true. Laughter reduces stress and and fights uh, depression. In fact, uh, uh, laughter is essential to cultivating relationships. Think about it. Uh, when was the la- think about the last time that you laughed out loud in a public place. You were alone. Uh, perhaps you're at home and you're, la- you're scrolling your Facebook feed and, and you see something funny and you just laugh. Perhaps you're in a coffee shop, you're reading, or, and you just burst out into laughter. Or perhaps you're at work checking your email or something funny from the, the previous day comes to mind and you laugh. I guarantee you, someone around you, you might, maybe a complete stranger, will say to you, what's so funny? care to share like laughter is essential to even cultivating relationships and it's good for us but researchers have shown uh, they've done a lot of research on laughter and but researchers have learned that the the older you get the less you laugh as the older you get uh, the less you laugh. Perhaps, uh, like this, well, this makes perfect sense. The older you get, you learn more about the brokenness of this world. Perhaps uh, you've experienced the betrayal of friends. Perhaps you, you're tired from work. Perhaps you, you're tired of people trying to make you laugh because you've heard it all before. And in our text before us, we see two individuals who laugh, but it's not the good kind of laughter. It's not the healthy kind of laughter. It is a laughter that's born out of cynicism. It's born in their disappointment. And their only hope, their only hope to actually restore their joyful laughter is the God of wonders. And the the reason for that is that when we marvel and wonder at God and at who he is, then our cynicism dies. In other words, the, the antidote, the cure to our cynicism is beholding God's beauty. And so the title for today's sermon is The Tale of Two Laughs. And I want to look at this by considering the first laugh and then I want to consider the, the last laugh. We see the first laugh in Genesis uh, 17. 17. Um, and God comes to Abraham again. And so we have looked at Abraham for the past two weeks, and the, the context for Abraham is that he has been following God perhaps for uh, 60 years by this point, perhaps longer, perhaps a little bit shorter. But he's been following God for quite some time since God called him out of his hometown of Ur in Genesis 12. And since when God called him in that text in Genesis 12, God also promises him that a son. He promises that he's going to make his, his descendants into a massive uh, nation. And this time, God's promise is a little different. It's, in fact, more specific, and it's actually targeted on Sarah. And God renamed Sarah. 
as Sarah. He, he renames her as Sarah. And names in Hebrew mean ab- everything. Uh, Sarah means princess. Abraham received a, a, a new name earlier from Abram, to, which means father, to Abraham, which is father of nations. And so names in Hebrew mean everything. And so as God comes to a- uh, Abraham, speaks about Sarah, he says that uh, she, from her, uh, she will... She shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So God is coming to Abraham and he is honoring Sarah. And in ancient times, you would be valued based upon your family. You would be valued and important through your children. And our cultural moment is slightly different. We find value and importance in many things all around us. It could be our work, our reputation, or uh, our, our uh, all sorts of our relationships, our romance, our family. It could be many different things. And God's promise that he has reiterated over and over again to Abraham and Sarah have led them to, to believe and led them to hope that they would have it all. But 60 years later, they still don't have a son. They still don't have a son. And so then as Abraham hears this promise in verse 17, Abraham falls on his face and laughs. And he says to God, Shall a child be born to a man who is 99 and a woman who is 89? If only Ishmael would count before you. And so he, and here what Abraham is doing is that he is laughing at God. He is uh, doubting God and he is challenging God. He is saying like, hey, instead of your plan, why don't you uh, just look at Ishmael? Just accept the son that I have from the plan that, I ha- that, that uh, Sarah and I hatched in Genesis 16. That's what Abraham is doing. But later we see God coming to Abraham again. And this is in chapter 18. He comes to Abraham and, and he says to Abraham that, hey, your wife is going to have a child. And as Sarah She's there by the tent, and she overhears this, and she laughs to herself, saying that after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I I have pleasure again? And so Sarah, like Abraham, doubts God's promise, and she has heard over and over again, and she doubts it. And because of that, she has grown cynical. And cynicism is deadly to the Christian faith. In fact, it is the opposite of faith. It is the opposite of of hope. Cynicism is pessimistic skepticism. So a cynic would say that it's unlikely that Sarah would have a child. But the cynic would also say that God is unable to deliver on his promises. And we we live in a cynical culture. But where does that cynicism come from? Well, Sarah's life is a guide here and, and gets at part of it. Sarah's, her life shows us. She has heard God's promise over and over again for the past 60 years. And every single time she has heard it, she has been let down. It hasn't happened. Cynicism thrives when we have unmet ex- expectations. You expect to have it all, but you don't. And so cynicism occurs. And cynicism thrives and, and grows in our disappointment. Like, so if you hope to be a better person this time this year than you were last year, but you're not, you don't see it, so you're cynical. Cynicism thrives in our, in our disappointment, and it, but it's also closely related to fear. 
Because cynicism protects, uh, offers protection. Cynicism offers protection from being disappointed or, and hurt from that disappointment again. And so C.S. Lewis, uh, he, he, he wrote uh, this long book on, on love called The Four Loves. And, and there's this one quote here that is relevant to cynicism, even though he's describing love. And this is what he writes. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. So the cynical heart, if you buy into the the promises and lies of cynicism, you may be protected from disappointment, but it will become cold and joyless. And so cynicism is the mindset that we adopt when we actually live out of our hopes and our expectations. It's when we live out of our culture's understanding of those things as opposed to living out of the love and the favor that God has for us. And, so, and this is why God continues to come to Abraham and Sarah it, because it has to do with our identity, He wants to remind them, and he wants to remind us of who we are, of who he created us to be, and our role within his story. And so if you're a cynic, I suspect that just reading this uh, may, uh, I I suspect that God's actions may seem cold to you. But I want to, uh, like, and the reason why I say that is because God is coming to Abraham and Sarah again, and and it seems like all he's doing is reiterating the same promise that they've that they've put their hope and trust in over and over again, and they've just been let down. So it may seem that God is cold to you here, but I want to point out two things to you. The first is that what Abraham and Sarah have been doing is that they're putting their trust in the promise. They're putting their trust really in the outcome. That's what they're hopeful for. They're not putting their trust, they're not putting their hope in the one who's providing that son. And so that's one thing that that, that, that's what they're doing. That's one thing. The second thing is that I want to point out that God is doing something here that is different. It is like this. God is doing something here for the first time in the entire biblical story that is very different. God physically comes to, to Abraham and Sarah. This is a theophany. God is coming to them in, in, a very, uh, in a very physical way in the form of a man. He is physically, tangibly, literally right in front of Abraham. Sarah, when she laughs, she is really hearing God's voice audibly, and she laughs. But there's also something else going on here as God is coming to them. And there's something new and unique about this promise this time. There's an urgency to it. God says to Abraham, by this time next year, you're going to have a son. And he laughs. Sarah, she laughs when she hears the same thing. The promise, in other words, is that in three months, you're going to conceive and have a son. There, there's an urgency here. And God is doing something very powerful in their lives. Because God has been with them for 70, 60, 70 years, and he's finally going to fulfill the promise that he has made to these two children of his. And, and he's doing so because he wants them to live in light of his love and favor for them. He wants them to know that he can do the impossible. 
In other words, like this is a very similar to what God does in our, in our life. Because the call of the gospel then is the same now. Is that we need to replace our expectations and cultural values with the love and favor of God. That's what God is after in Abraham and Sarah's life. And that's what he is after in our lives as well. He wants you to personally know his love for you. And he's not going to stop that until you do. He's going to continue to pursue you to know his love. That may take a day, a week, a month, a year, decades, a lifetime. Like God will continue to pursue you until you know his love for you. And this is what he does with Abraham and Sarah. He, they laugh at him. They laugh and doubt his, good, his promise, and he proves them wrong. He is actually the one who has the last laugh. If you look at uh, Genesis 17, verse 18, we, we see this hinted at. Uh, God says to, to Abraham that when you have a son, you shall name him Isaac. And Isaac means he laughs. Names mean everything in Hebrew. There's some irony here, some very delicious irony. And we see the birth of Isaac in Genesis uh, 21. Uh, and Sarah says this in verse 5. that and as, Ab- as Isaac is born, this is what she says. Abraham was a, a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears of this is going to laugh because who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would have had a child, child and nursed children at the age of 90? Who would have said that? Well, God did. And that's the irony. God is the one who told them over and over and over again that they would have a son. And because of this extraordinary, miraculous conception here, Sarah's heart is changed forever. The like God made the impossible possible. He made the impossible happen. And so what happens here in Sarah's heart is, is miraculous. Her pessimism gave way to optimism. Her skepticism gave way to faith. Her cynicism gave way to hope. Her sarcasm turned to joy. Death gave way to life. That's what happened in her heart. She, instead of having this, this cynical, sarcastic heart, laugh in her heart, she actually has this authentic, joyful laugh here and when Isaac is born. And that's actually the way of God. That's the way of God. He is a God of wonders. He is the God of the impossible. The, and so we need to respond to the God of wonders in a similar way. But what's that look like? What's it look like for us to follow God, the God of wonders? Well, let me give an illustration here. I've used it before, so some of you may have heard it. And it's the story of Sasha Sutsarov. Sasha Sutsarov grew up in communist Russia. And during the uh, 70 years of communist Russia, 200,000 Christian leaders were killed. 40,000 churches was destroyed. And by the time, uh, like, so literally what, what happened is that Christianity was virtually wiped out in, in Russia. And so Sasha, he, he, he was a, a good Russian. He, he as he um, became a man. He got married. He had a daughter. He had a wonderful job. He had everything a good Russian could want. And then one day, his daughter befriended an American uh, girl. This American uh, girl, her, her parents were missionaries. And soon, Sasha's wife became their language tutor. But Sasha's job was a KGB officer. So he began to spy on this American family. 
And as the years passed, as he was spying on them, he was awestruck by by, by how this family lived together. He was awestruck by their love for others. They, they were willing to do anything for anybody, but they didn't expect anything in return. Uh, he, he saw that they enjoyed each other. They saw that they loved others, that, and they loved God. And he also recognized, and this was very perceptive, is that he saw that all of that came from their life with God. And so silently, without telling anybody, Sasha uh, his atheism turned into agnosticism. And so one day, he actually found himself praying. And in his own words, he, he said, he, this is what he wrote, is that he had a keen understanding that God was pouring himself into him. And so that day, he went home. He went home to his wife, and as he's uh, coming inside the house, his wife says to him, Sasha, what's the matter? He's like, what do you mean, what's the matter? I'm like, everything's fine. She's like, you're smiling. I have never seen you smile like this before. So Sasha decided to tell his wife that he had become a Christian. And his wife said, hey, guess what? You're a KGB officer. I don't know how to tell you this, but I am too. And so, and so the reality is that for Sasha, like he, he had a challenge. He had a decision to make because he's a KGB officer. He would be killed if he uh, announced that he was now a Christian. So he decided to live a double life where he would help the church in Russia. He would help plant churches even, and while still being a KGB officer. Then later, uh, he uh, left the KGB um, at a time when he could actually publicly announce his, his faith, and he, so he was baptized. And now Sasha is the president of Moscow Seminary, and he continues to help plant churches and pastor churches and more. And so, friends, this, this is a story of things that happen in our world even today. God is at work. And when I first heard the story of Sasha, it made me want to be a Christian. It made me glad I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and the reason for that is because like, I, I hear the story and I'm just in awe. I'm marveling at God. I'm wondering at him. And, and the reality is, is that God is at work. He is renewing this broken and vandalized world. And when we see that... When we truly see that, our only response is wonder, where we marvel at who he is and what he does, where we can actually laugh in life, not, in, not laugh because we're cynical, but we can actually laugh because God is working for our joy and he's making us new. And this, is a, this marveling is important. And one theologian described this essentialism of wonder like this, is that if you do not wonder, then you do not pray. And if you do not pray, you do not love. In other words, that without wonder, we actually cannot love others well. And if, you, you're, if you're here today and you're skeptical of the Christian faith, I, I want you to know that this is why marveling and wondering and beholding God's glory is important because without it, we cannot love others at all. And the other thing to, to point out in, in this is that as we look at Sarah's story, she, she's laughing. And the reason why she is laughing is because God is for her joy. God is for our joy. And we forget that every single day of our lives. And what we need to do is our, immerse ourselves into God's story so that we would know what he is doing in this world. We also need to surround ourselves with our spiritual brothers and sisters so that we can hear firsthand what God is doing in their lives, but we can also 
see it unfold as well. And if we do these two things in our everyday lives, then we're going to cultivate a heart that expects God to work in our day. We we will cultivate a heart that is actually willing to marvel at God. And and in the big story of Scripture, and within within God's story, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he defeated death for us for one simple reason. He did all that for our joy. His very first miracle was to restock the bar at a wedding where the wine ran out. That's what Jesus does for us. And when we walk with God, with our pain and our disappointment, it's, it's, it's easy to grow cynical. That's, that's what, what we want to do. But the, and that's easy because life is hard. It's challenging. And it's, in fact, it's miserable in, at times. But when we walk with God, the pain, the challenges, the misery, they have a redemptive purpose. It's still hard, but it makes it more bearable. It actually makes it bearable because God is making all things new. And he's making us new as well on a very personal level. He uses our unmet expectations. He uses our unmet hopes. He uses our cynicism so that we can actually be made new ourselves. That's, what's God, that's what God is doing in Abraham and Sarah's life, and that's what God is doing in our lives as well. But the only way for us to, to truly and fully become the people whom God has made us to be, how, who, the people whom God wants us to be, is for us to capture the wonder and beauty of God ourselves. Let's pray.